1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. If anyone teaches you, teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What a beautiful day today, huh? You guys, anybody get to do anything outdoors today? Enjoy the sunshine? That was, was good. It was really nice. Um, we just got back. We took the kids at a week in Tahoe. It was amazing. Some uh, time in the snow. Very beautiful. Um, okay, we are, we are one week into our three weeks of fasting and prayer. Has anybody been able to jump into that? Anybody participating? Yeah, good, good. I highly recommend, even if it's just fasting through a meal or something, that you try to participate. Jump into this a little bit. There's guides in the back that you can grab that will help guide your time in prayer. The other thing I just wanted to add with that is make sure if you're fasting, you're praying. Because if you're fasting without praying, you're just starving yourself. And that's, that's not the point. Um, so make sure you are including that in that time. And this week we are, um, as Matt said, we're, we are praying for, for our church, for Fresh Vision. Pray for us as elders. We're, we're praying through what this next year looks like. Um, join with us, guys. We, we're inviting you as a community, as a family, to pray with us as we seek the Lord for what he wants to do in this community. So join us. All right. We are getting really close. I know we took a break for Advent through First Timothy, but we're getting really close to finishing this book. Um, just as a way of a quick reminder, Timothy, First Timothy, is a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the Lord, Timothy. Uh, and it is, it's a personal letter. This is, this is a letter written by somebody who cares dearly about somebody, giving instruction and direction and helping him to accomplish something. Timothy had been sent to Ephesus uh, by Paul to accomplish something. He was there to deal with some false teachers and some problems that had developed. And he is getting instruction from Paul in that regard. Paul says in chapter 3.15 why he's writing the book. He says this. He says, I am writing 
so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That's what we titled this series way back when we started it, The Household of God. That's the whole point of this letter, is how do you behave as members of God's church, as members of God's household, his family? This whole letter has been uh, about that, this whole series, teaching series, we've been looking at. So Paul sent Timothy to deal with some false teachers, to address a mess that had been developed. And what we come to in our passage today, Paul is beginning to close out this letter. He's beginning to wind down this letter. And it's going to get very personal sort of next week as we close it out. A little bit of a charge to Timothy. But in this section, I think what we see is Paul challenging Timothy to live a contrasting life to live in a contrasting way to that of the false teachers and of the leaders that he's dealing with and of the community around him. The way of Jesus is a contrasting way of living in the world. This passage, I think, is very, it's extremely relevant for us today. As we read it, did you feel that? As we read it this morning or this evening? I'm still saying that. Yesterday, I was driving my younger three. We have five kids, by the way. We were driving, I was driving the younger three, um, five, seven, and nine, out to Napa to go race BMX bikes. And on the way, I'm listening to their conversation. You guys, you guys ever do that just for fun, listen to the conversation with kids? Um, and we passed this whole group of supercars. Ferraris flying past us the other way. And I begin to hear my five-year-old talking about his favorite types of cars. They're naming off brand names, and they're, I want this. And the, it's funny, the, the five-year-old is like, I want the one that has the, the shield and the, the ram on the front. I'm like, he wants a truck. <laughs> okay. Uh, for the record, we drive a 95 15-passenger van. It's not like, we're, not like we're encouraging them in this. But I was thinking, I was thinking about this passage, I'm thinking about uh, as they're having this conversation, man, it, it doesn't take much for this, uh, this hunger and this longing for more to develop. These, they can't drive for a long time. Five years old. Hot Wheels. But they're already talking about what kind of cars they want, and who wants a Tesla, and who wants a Ferrari, and they're talking about all these cars, and I'm like, guys, you're probably going to get a 95, 15-passenger van. (laughs) Let's be real here. Um, But our entire culture feeds from a very young age this desire and this longing, this hunger for more and for newer and for better and for more exciting, even from a young age. Think of all the marketing dollars that is spent trying to get you discontent, trying to make you want something better, something newer, something more attractive, trying to make you 
look for something that's more relaxing or more enjoyable. If we think about it, take a step back. Okay, all of life is discipleship. All of life, you are learning. You are growing into the image of something. Everything is forming you. You are either being formed into the image of what these marketers are trying to form you into, little consumers, right? My five-year-old becoming a little consumer. Or you're being formed into the image of Christ. And I think our passage tonight is about being Timothy being held up as a contrast, as an image. He's formed into the image of Christ, and he's, he's content. It's different than the rest of the world. And Paul is challenging Timothy, I think he's challenging us tonight, to live differently, to live as a unique people, to, being for, uh, to live a life that is not being formed by the cravings and the longings of the world, but by the image of Jesus. So let's look at this passage. We're going to walk through it pretty closely tonight. We're going to revisit a couple of the verses that Mike touched on last week, just because I felt like it, it all tied together. Let's read this, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. These false teachers, Paul says, are puffed up with conceit. They understand nothing. These false teachers' motives was to appear godly, to look godly, to look the part, thinking that that might lead to some financial gain. They had an unhealthy craving for controversy and for arguments. Unfortunately, I think that's all too true of many of our camps inside the church. We have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for arguments and for debates. Unfortunately, there are people, even in the church, that think that godliness is a means to gain. The prosperity gospel, which, which is a false gospel, has pervaded much of the American church because it's comfortable. It feels good. There's still a lot of people that want to look godly or want to use the pulpit or use ministry as a way of making connections and, and uh, furthering their business and, and growing financially. There are people who want to use their network in the church as a means for financial gain by manipulating others. And honestly now, I mean, this, this 
unhealthy craving for controversy almost feels like a bigger problem. So much of us have an unhealthy craving for controversy. We love clickbait. Give me the controversial stuff. All of this only produces bad. That's the stuff of the false teachers. And Paul is trying to tell Timothy to live differently. I think he's trying to tell us to live differently. We're not to play that game. Paul says that that will only produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Those are not happy things. Constant friction. But the way of Jesus is not like that. The way of Jesus is a stark contrast to the way the world operates. It stands in opposition even. The way of Jesus, Paul says, is marked by contentment. Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says that using your godliness or or your pretend godliness for gain is no good. That's not good. But godliness with contentment, there is great gain in that. That's the way of Jesus. Godliness with contentment. What is contentment? Contentment, shorthand definition here, I think is finding joy through what God has given you. Finding joy through what God has given you, the things that are there. The opposite of contentment, I think, would be greed or coveting. Greed and coveting, that that comes naturally to us. The sin nature is all about that. Contentment does not come easy. Contentment takes effort. It takes, you have to desire, you have to learn contentment. We know this, even Paul, who wrote most of this New Testament, wrote this letter that we're studying tonight, he says that he had to learn it. Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says this, not that, I am, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. He says, I know, this is verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have you ever wondered about the context of that verse? It's not just like a bumper sticker verse. (laughs) Paul had to learn to be content. He had to develop the skill of being content. It doesn't come naturally. And if you think about your kids, how many of you guys have kids in here? I know there's a lot of you because the kids took off. (laughs) Think about your kids. Contentment is not the natural state of mind. They're born discontent. (laughs) They have needs right away. They have to learn contentment. 
just like we do. We have to teach them contentment. Verse 7, let's continue through here. Paul says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul's not being original here. He's playing off a concept that's at least as old as Job. Job, this is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. I don't know why. It's kind of sick, actually, when I think of it. But um, <clears throat> anyways, uh, Job, Job 1, terrible thing happens. Job loses everything. It's terrible. And Job's response, Job 1.20 and this is, I think, what I love about this. Job 1.20, this is Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a man who had just, his children had just, died, house collapsed, lost everything. And his response was to fall on his face and bless God. That's contentment in a way that I can't even imagine. But the point here, Paul says, you cannot keep what you make in this life. All the money, all the wealth, all the prosperity, all the position, the comfort, you can't keep it into the afterlife. Into the age to come, all of that is fleeting. People will spend an entire life, we will spend our entire life to make a living, to build a nest egg, to save. Hopefully we can pass that on to our kids and then be, be faithful with that. People will move and rearrange their life to make life easier and simpler and more comfortable, more convenient, more of a life of leisure. And here's what Paul's saying. None of that matters in eternity. How big your savings account matter, it doesn't matter. How much you invested, what companies you started, none of that matters. And look, that, like, I don't know if you guys know, I own and operate a company. <laughs> I understand, like, that's, this is the company, this is the environment we live in. So there's nothing wrong with that. But in the scheme of things, what matters is eternity. One thing that we can, though, as I was thinking about this, one thing we can take into eternity, I think we can take the impact that we have on our kids and our children and our, our kids' friends and other children that we're around. I mean, this is why foster care is such a big deal, right? Because you, we have the ability in this life to make an investment into kids or other people that does echo into eternity, 
Because the way that we engage and live and spread the gospel and, and, and display the life of Jesus, that does play out into eternity. There is eternal value in that. Those are the things worth investing in. But if we spend our whole lives only focused on building more and more wealth, more and more, more, and we ignore or neglect the important things in life, we've missed the whole point. That is not the way of Jesus. Paul goes on. He says, verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing. The point here, I'll keep reading actually. We'll get back to this. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Wow, Paul. (laughs) Anybody else feel that? Like I said, I, I started a business. There is definitely a side of wanting to grow that business, grow wealth. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with those we will be content. The point here is not that it's bad to have things. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I don't think Paul's saying you shouldn't have anything. You should live in in poverty. It's not bad to be taken care of. I think that's Paul's point. If we have food and clothing. To clarify this, I think it'd be helpful. Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jump over to the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 6. I don't think it'll be on the screens. We're having, this building's having internet issues, so. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Notice that connection there? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? In which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. In fact, we know now anxiety will do the opposite. And why are, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arranged like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, 
saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Wow, Jesus. Jesus is very clear. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. We as disciples of Jesus are to trust that God knows what he is doing. God is sovereign and he is powerful and supreme. He knows what you need. And he is fully capable of caring for you as his child. It's not wrong for you to have your needs taken care of. In fact, I think Jesus says, like, we should, we should trust that God is going to meet our needs. But if we're honest, most of us are not concerned with our needs of what to eat or the clothes on our back. Most of us are not concerned with that. Global statistics, and these are old, they say, that this statistic I read says that if you have a roof over your head and consistent food on your table, you are richer than 93% of the world's population. If you own a pair of shoes, everybody in here owns a pair of shoes? Multiple pairs of shoes? you are richer than 75% of the world. Most of us are not honestly anxious about our daily bread. Some, for sure, some are. Some of us, that, that's a deal. But I think, I think we should hold that into proper, prior, proper perspective there. Now, I also don't think that every Christian should desire to be poor. I don't think that's Paul's point. I don't think that's Jesus' point. I think there's a difference between not being anxious about our needs and being, as Paul says, those who desire to be rich. Those are two different contrasting ends of the spectrum. When we desire to be rich, Paul says we fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and dis destruction. That reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a large cloud of, a large cloud of witnesses, sorry, therefore, since we have such a large, large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Disciple of Jesus, let us lay aside every hindrance, every sin, every thing that easily ensnares us. 
If that's the desire to be wealthy, let us lay that aside. It's an ensnarement. It traps you. It leads to destruction. As I was reading and studying for this this week, I read this. William Barclay said this. He said, it is not that Christianity pleads for poverty. There is no special virtue in being poor or in having constant struggles to make ends meet. But it does plead for two things. It pleads for a realization that, there is, there is ne- uh, that it is never in the power of things to bring you happiness. Wealth and things is completely void of power to bring you happiness. And it pleads for a concentration upon the things that are permanent and lasting and of real, eternal value. We can only take two things to God in the age to come. We can and we must take ourselves. You present yourself to him. Therefore, it's, it's the great task of this life, of your journey of discipleship, to build yourself up into the image of Christ because you will present yourself to him. And I think we can and we must and we will take our relationships. All of that, I think, transfers into what did you do with those relationships that are in front of you? with the people that the Lord gave you to invest in. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into snares. Verse 10. This is, I think, one of the most misquoted sayings in the Bible. Verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Scripture does not say that money is the root of all evil. Despite what you've heard, that's not what it says. It does say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. That's a really important distinction. When we think about it for two seconds. We know this is true. We know that when you love money, that, that produces all sorts of evil. Money in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's just a thing. But the love of it can and does lead to many evils. With money, people may selfless, uh, sorry, may selfishly serve their own desires. With money, people may answer the cry of their neighbor's need and take care of somebody. With money, they may advance some evil desire that they had. They may do something that's nefarious and corrupt. Or with it, they could make life way easier for other people. They may make it possible for, for people to live as God intended them to live. Money is not in and of itself 
evil, but it is a responsibility. It is something that we have to take seriously. It has the power for good, and it also has the power for evil. I want to look at a couple, five specific dangers involved with this love of money. You guys doing okay? I'll take that as a yes. The desire for money, the love of money, it tends to be a thirst which cannot be satisfied. There was a Roman saying that wealth is like the seawater. It's far from quenching your thirst. It actually intensifies it. The more you get, the more you want. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 5, he said this. Solomon had a lot of money, a lot of wealth. He said this, Ecclesiastes 5, 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Second thing, the love of money, the desire for wealth, it's built on an illusion. It's founded on this desire for security and for strength and for comfort, but wealth cannot buy you any of those things. It cannot buy you health. We know this. can't buy you love. can't preserve you from sorrow. can't protect you from death. Right? We watched this over this last two years. This pandemic just erased all of that facade that health care or anything could protect you. Money can't protect it. The most wealthy countries... Everybody is affected. Security, which is founded on material things, is doomed to fail. Again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, verse 19. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Third thing. The love of money it tends to make people selfish. If we're driven by the desire for money, desire for wealth, it is then nothing for you if somebody else has to lose so that you can gain. We watch this happen all the time. People will destroy other people for their own gain so that they can climb a little bit further up the ladder. The desire for wealth and for things, it fixes your thoughts upon yourself, in which case others become a means, either a means or an obstacle to your 
ultimate goal. Fourth thing. Although the desire for money could be based on a longing for security, in the end, it only brings anxiety. We know this, right? The more people have, the more people try to keep it. I've talked to very wealthy people that have told me that they feel like they are, and this is a slave to their image, to their lifestyle, to their perfect credit. Because they have to keep it up. So it produces more and more anxiety. It's crushing. The fifth thing here, the love of money may easily lead people into wrong ways of getting it. Exploiting others, bringing pain, trouble. To seek to be independent, to be prudent, to save, to take care of yourself, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think that's it's a Christian duty. We, we should be um, intentional to be faithful with our finances, to save, to invest. I think all of that is good and right, and we should do that. But to make the love of money, of comfort, of wealth, of prosperity and health, the driving force of your life, it cannot do anything for you. It is the way of the world. It is not the way of Jesus. It will lead It's an ensnarement. It will trap you and lead to destruction. But, and this is, I think, what Paul's laying out in our passage tonight, contentment comes when we escape the slavery of things and when we find our wealth in the love and the fellowship of others when we realize that our most precious thing, most precious thing that we can have is our friendship with God, which is paid for fully by the precious blood of Jesus. That brings contentment. That breaks your slavery to the longing of things when we can trust and rest in something that's already been paid for. Greed destroys your capacity to enjoy what God has already accomplished for you. Discontentment removes your ability to enjoy the things that God has paid for, that he has accomplished. It will ruin you. You cannot, quoting Jesus, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money.
if money or comfort or prosperity or health, relaxation, and easy living, if that is your driving force, that is the thing that you're going after, you're not going after Jesus. You can't have both. If we are truly disciples of Jesus, then we will use our resources. We will sacrifice our comfort, our security, our convenience. We will give everything for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's glory on the earth. Because that's what Jesus did. So if we are disciples trying to be like Jesus, he laid everything aside to pursue you. He took the form of a man and was crushed and whipped whipped and beat and hung on a cross, laid everything aside. That's the way of Jesus. And that's my challenge for us as a community tonight to be a unique people, that refuge would be a contrast to a community around us that is craving things and more and more, that we would be a contrasting people, that we would display the image of Jesus, that we would fully trust the Father for our provision, that we would not be given to anxiety and to um, workaholism, that we would rest and trust that he is fully capable of meeting your needs and providing for you. Would it be like Jesus? Jesus, incredibly generous, looking for opportunities to give away our wealth for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, for eternal reward, that our investment would be in things that last things that are eternal? Would it be like Jesus, content and joyful? Joyful with what the Lord has given us, content with what we have, both the good and the not so good. Be like Jesus. Live in a different way amongst a people we would live in a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. That's the whole thing, guys. That's discipleship. That we would live in a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the only logical answer. So the question tonight is, are you living that way with your finances, with your wealth, with your resources, How are you provoking those kind of questions with your time? How are you provoking those kind of questions with your plans, with your hopes, with your dreams? Worship can come up. I'm going to pray. Worship team, it's... It's just you guys. It's good. Father, I thank you
that you are a good father, that we can trust you fully. God, that there is no need to be anxious about tomorrow. Father, I pray that as a community, as a church family, that we would live a unique life, that we would be a unique people that is not given to anxiety or the desire for wealth or comfort, but we live in a way that provokes questions for which the only answer is the gospel. God, I pray that you would use each and every one of us to provoke those kinds of questions, that we would use our resources, our time, our effort, our energy for the sake of the gospel. Father, we love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name.